Amen. What a privilege to have such a cornerstone on which to build our lives and, and to live day by day by day by day. Well, good morning. How's everybody today? This is when we need a retractable roof here. Enjoy the sunshine. Uh, oh, no. Next, next project, no, we're not putting a retractable roof in. You do know, I learned this, that, that little space there was supposed to be a skylight. Fortunately, they ran out of money. <laughs> to me, that would have been a nightmare. Because <laughs> you couldn't control, uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons. Anyway, we do have a budget meeting today, 4 o'clock, if you're so interested. Uh, budgets are out on the welcome cart this morning. They were, there was an electronic attachment at the, in the update on Friday. So if you want to save paper, although it's already dead and printed, so you can take one. Uh, that's at 4 o'clock today. We have our annual meeting next Sunday at 6. So hopefully the Rams will crush Tampa Bay before 4 o'clock and we can, uh, we can all be here. So go Rams, right? You, you do understand they are the Los Angeles Rams, and we are closest to Los Angeles, just so we all are, know that. I grew up rooting for the Rams, disappointed year after year, year, Roman Gabriel, the whole nine yards, so whatever. It's L.A. <laughs> it's sunny. We don't really care. It's still it's gorgeous out. <laughs> all right, let's get to the text, shall we? When Jesus takes the scroll from his father's hand, it is the beginning of the end. But rather than speculate on what's going to happen at that point and, and set the chronology, in this series we're really focusing on what the Bible has said all along about those days, and that is be ready. Be ready for that moment. And so we are in a series called Dear Church, where we are exploring Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Each week we ask ourselves, if Jesus visited Peninsula, what would he say to us? So what would he say about us? Revelation 2 and 3 contains seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, Western Turkey. And in these seven letters, our Lord pays a pastoral visit to each of these different first century churches. And as he visits them and gives them a message, we discover, you know, they're really not all that different from us. And so we want to learn from what he says to them. Because in each case, he tailors a message fitted just for that congregation, just in their culture and in their setting. And so what would he say to us? We opened last Sunday morning with a look at the first letter, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus. And the letter challenged us to ask a question, how is our love for Jesus? Are you loving Jesus? Is that seen in how you love one another? Have we left that first love? Is it fading? The motto of the seminary I attended is this, teach truth, love well. Ephesus got the teach truth part. They didn't get the love well part so good. And how about us? Well, that was last week. There are new challenges for this week, right? If you travel about 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus, you'll come to a large harbor in western Turkey. And you'll come to the city, which is, which is known as Smyrna. Today, Smyrna is the city of Izmir. It is the third largest city in all of Turkey. So it's a, it's a big place. It's a big city. 
And because of its location and how beautiful that it was with this huge harbor, it became known as the Ornament of Asia. It was just gorgeous. We should note as we begin our study, this is one of two churches of these seven letters to churches, one of two that doesn't have anything, no rebuke said to them. Nothing bad is said about them. And I think that's, that silence is, is striking because Jesus can be rather harsh to some of these churches, but he has nothing bad to say about them at Smyrna and the other one is Philadelphia. And that silence is, 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 should be noteworthy to us. And I don't think it's that he felt sorry for them. However, I do think that there is a deeper reality at work here. Because here is a church in Smyrna that suffered persecution. They struggled and suffered as Christians. And that suffering they endured made them strong. It seems to have stripped them of everything except Jesus himself. And so here's a church that is obviously in trouble, and the enemies have an upper hand in Smyrna. And since the, believered, uh, the, the beleaguered believers in Smyrna, they're so troubled, Jesus doesn't say anything to discourage them, no negative. And this little letter tells us something about the church, but it really tells us something even more about the Savior. And so I'm going to tackle this letter a little differently than normal. Normal, we've only been in it one week, or, you know, you've... You've been through the churches before. But instead of walking through this, this letter, phrase by phrase by phrase, I'm going to pull it all apart and rearrange the phrases, phrases so it's a little more topical and so we can learn some lessons, I think. Uh, because I'm going to ask four questions, and the answers are there, mostly in the text. But let's begin by just reading this short letter. Four verses, that's all it is. Revelation chapter 2 Verse 8. Got your Bibles, I hope, because it's not going on the screen. Here it is. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and has come to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So, let's ask four questions. Question one, why did the believers suffer in Smyrna? You're only 40 miles north of Ephesus. There's no persecution and suffering going on in Ephesus. So, why Smyrna? Now, the letter doesn't tell us specifically, but if you look at the culture and the history of the city, I think it's pretty obvious what was going on. And I think there are two reasons why they suffered. Number one is this, Smyrna had a, had a political alliance with Rome. Once Smyrna came under Roman rule, it, it, it's going to go Rome all the way. Let's please these guys. Let's have them on our side. They built in, in 195 B.C. This, this statue of, it's called Dia Roma, the one in, in, um, 
Smyrna doesn't exist anymore, but this one's in Rome. It's just this gorgeous, it's just the deification of Rome itself. And they put one there in a temple. In AD 26, so, you know, a few years before the Savior was crucified, they, there was a competition held throughout the empire. Who wants to build the, the, the temple to Tiberius? And Smyrna won the competition. And when they won the competition, the whole point is, you know, let's promote and use this to promote emperor worship. And so they took great pride in, in their temple to Tiberius. And if you walked around the landscape of Smyrna, you'd see temples to gods and goddesses as well. There's Apollo, one for Apollo there, and Aphrodite and Zeus. And it was a port, a huge port, and, and it had really good roads, so it became the central hub for commerce in the area. They could, goods could travel west to Rome and east into the rest of the empire. And so to live in Smyrna meant you were a hotbed of, of Caesar worship of pagan sacrifice, of, of wonderful commerce. And all of that put the Christians at a disadvantage. As the center for the cult of, of emperor worship, everyone was asked once a year to burn incense to Caesar and call him Lord. You want to live here? That's what you got to do. If you didn't, then you just weren't patriotic, or at worst, you were, you were treasonous. So it's a center of, of, of political alliance to Rome. The second thing about Smyrna is a large Jewish population. There's a large community of Jews in Smyrna, and Jews didn't like Christians. And Smyrna was not safe if you were a Christian. You were marked. They, they noticed what you did. They marked out your path. They told on you. And those who were reported got, got arrested. So I think that's why they suffered. There's this large Jewish population who, who is antagonistic to the church, and the Roman political culture was strong in Smyrna, and so you were at danger there. So according to this letter, second question then is, what did they suffer? What, what kind of suffering is this? And he mentions five specific things that the church in Smyrna suffered. First was afflictions. Verse 8, the text says, Jesus says, I know your afflictions. Afflictions, these are not ordinary troubles of life. These are hard things. The word can often refer to, to what we might call catastrophic pressures. In other contexts, it's used by a giant boulder that lands on somebody and crushes them. That's sort of significant. And, and as with, with the darkness and, and the enemies around them in the church of Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your afflictions. When you read that sentence, you think of believers around the world today facing attacks from, from angry Hindu mobs or, or saints in Nigeria or hacked to death by fanatical Muslims. I mean, this stuff happens. The church today in this world still faces afflictions. It always has and it always will. Second thing they faced, he says in verse 8, I know your afflictions and your poverty. So, so maybe a lot of the believers in Smyrna were slaves to wealthy citizens. If that's true, then they actually lived in poverty. Or maybe they suffered looting. Maybe people just took their stuff and their property because of their faith. If you owned a business, you know, maybe the pagans around, I'm not going to go there. They don't worship the emperor. So I'm going to take my business to someone who's aligned with me politically. 
The word for poverty means extreme hardship to the point of being beggars. It's abject poverty. It's humiliating poverty. It's degrading. See, it doesn't always pay to be a Christian business person, does it? Especially if, you, if the point is to make a profit. Because you might have to refuse some of those sweetheart deals to, to keep your integrity. You may have to say no to some shady business methods that everybody else is doing, and that's how they're making money. Or you have to be denied the luxury of, of cutting corners to increase profit at the client's expense. You see, sometimes when you do things God's way, you're, it's going to be more time-consuming, it's going to be more expensive, and it might even be painful. And choosing integrity does not guarantee wealth and profit. In fact, sometimes it means just the opposite. And I think that had to have been the case here in Smyrna with the believers. They faced poverty. They faced affliction. He's not done yet. Third, slander. Verse 9. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, the Jews, that's a rather harsh description of Jewish people. But that's what he says was going on there. These Jews were spreading false rumors about those who followed Christ. What kind of rumors would they spread? Well, think about it. In the first century, you know, because they're Christians, what are they doing? They're taking the Lord's Supper. They're eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. They got accused of being cannibals. They refused to visit the pagan temples. Therefore, who are they? Then basically, they're atheists. Because they talked about being members of one another and of loving one another. They got accused of, of sexual orgies. And because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, then they're basically traitors in the Roman Empire. See, slander's hard. It's hard to bear up under it, especially if it comes from those who are in the camp of the great enemy. Third thing, fourth thing they face is prison. Verse 10, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Barclay said, in those days a Christian was a person who lived with a sword poised over his or her head. The early apostles, Peter, Paul, they'd been inside a lot of prisons, as, had a lot of, as have had a lot of Old Testament saints. Joseph, Daniel. But they were able to turn those places into into to sanctuaries of worship and praise. But these, church, these people faced prison. Fifth, they faced death. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death. The ultimate threat, the ultimate level of suffering for the church at Smyrna was some of them were facing death. One of the most famous Christian martyrs of all time in the, in the early church was a native of Smyrna. They knew this, or they were going to know this very well. Most followers of Jesus have probably never heard of a man named Polycarp. But the early believers knew all about him. He was one of the first and well-known martyrs of the Christian faith after, you know, the disciples and the era of the apostles, era of the apostles themselves. In his youth, he was a disciple. He was a follower of the apostle John. Hmm. Perhaps... He's in Smyrna when this letter arrives. In fact, he probably was. For years, he served as the bishop of the church in Smyrna. 
during a wave of persecution that came about 155 A.D., so maybe 55, 65 years from the day of this writing, Roman officials and a mob, well, the mob demanded his death, and the Roman officials, they, they, they liked the guy, so they didn't want to do that. And they tried to offer him chances to deny his faith, but every time he refused. When he was given one final chance before they were going to burn him at the stake, he, he replied in words that, that we have recorded down through history. It says this, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The story goes that as the soldiers prepared to nail him to the stake to be burned, because they kind of got to fasten them down, I guess, he refused. He said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from the, from the nails. So they lit the fire. He's burned to death. And as the fire consumes him, he is heard to say this, or to pray this, really. I thank you, O Lord, that you have deemed me worthy of this day and this hour to take up the cross of Christ with many witnesses. And you read that story and you say to yourself, where do you get believers like this? I do know that God has his polycarps all over the world today. There are brave men and women who will not bow the knee to Baal, who will not swear allegiance to Caesar, who will not give up their Christian faith, who will not return to Islam. They would rather die than surrender what Jesus Christ has given to them. Of such men and women, the world is not worthy. But can you relate to what these early Christians experienced? Can you relate to what our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing today? Christianity Today, on Friday, like two days ago, came out with an updated list of the, of the most difficult countries for those who follow Jesus. And I guess it was quite earth-shattering because it, it, the list changed due to the political situation in Afghanistan. But the top ten in order are Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, and India. They have a list of the top 50 if you really are interested in that. But it's hard for us to imagine what it's like to live in a place where there is such hatred of believers. But is that kind of persecution the only form of suffering for the believer? John Piper says, no, there's other ways we suffer. He believes that although much of the suffering experienced by Christians comes as a result of choosing to be openly Christian in risky situations, all situations are risky in one way or another. And if I choose to be a follower of Christ, I need to choose that path which will include some good things and some not so good things. And all suffering which comes in the path of obedience is suffering with and for Christ. Whether it's cancer, conflict, whether it's enzymes or enemies. Because once our path 
of following Jesus. And once we're on that path, it means what? It means we don't murmur or complain about the things that come up along the way. We may be like Paul, ask that this suffering be removed and beg for it to be removed. But if it's not God's will to do so, we embrace the cost of that being in our path. And every incident of suffering on this path of obedience, whether it's persecution or sickness or an accident, they all have one thing in common. They all make us afraid. And they all threaten our faith in the goodness of God. They all tempt us to walk away from the path of obedience. Is this what it means to follow Jesus? Hmm. Piper says in summary, Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance in obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ, whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin, or sabotage. And I think that's true. So what do you do? Where do you turn? Well, I think now you turn to the character of the one who has saved us. Question number three, what does Jesus bring to the suffering believer? What does he bring? This letter brings some wonderful resources to the church which is suffering. Don't skip over the tools that are here. First tool is the sovereignty of God. Chapter 2, verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Jesus brings to those who suffer what? He brings his eternal person. He's both in the beginning and the end. He is the one who is from everlasting and who is to everlasting. And in the midst of the change that's going on in a life that's suffering, he becomes the one who does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the place of our security. And all of our past, our present, and our future are under his sovereign control. Whatever comes into our lives is first sifted through his hands, which are loving. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's the first. He's the last. Second, we have the empathy of Jesus. Verse 8, these are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. These Christians, they were told that the death was in the picture for some of them. It's going to happen. So, and Jesus says, what? Be faithful unto death. So what do you do? Who understands what's be, what is involved in death? The Savior. Who has experienced death in its fullness? The Savior. He is the one who died and came to life again. Who better understands suffering than him who suffered himself? Hebrews 2, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of his people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. When we suffer, we know he's been there. He understands. He's empathetic. He will faithfully and mercifully be with us in that suffering. And when suffering gets a little too hard for you, ask yourself this question. 
Has anyone spit in your face yet? They did spit in the face of the Savior. They beat him. They plucked some hair from his beard. They beat him on the back with rods. They lied about him. So when you face any mistreatment or misjudgment, remember Jesus knows what that is like. He's a fellow sufferer. And so he can bring empathy to us when we suffer. Third, we have the omniscience of Jesus, his knowledge. He says what? Verse 9, I know. I know your afflictions. The word know there means to know by experience, not by observation. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He can help us. He knows us. He knows what's going on in our lives. The fact that Jesus knows what his children are experiencing should bring great comfort to our lives. His knowledge isn't some distant acquaintance. He, he knows how we feel. He knows what we're afraid of. He knows what we tell nobody else. He knows what we probably don't even know about ourselves. And we're afraid to admit to ourselves. There is no trial or affliction or persecution that Jesus doesn't know through experience. He's faced it all. We have his omniscience. I know your afflictions. Fourth, we have the perspective of Jesus. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. What? Yet you are rich. You see, Jesus doesn't have the same set of values and standards as the world. In the world's eyes, these impoverished believers in Smyrna, they're total losers. They're fools. They're idiots. Jesus looks not on the material possessions that you have, but Jesus is looking at the spiritual condition of your heart. He reminds us that those who are poor in this world are rich toward God. They can be rich in faith. They can be rich in good deeds. They can have treasures stored up in heaven. You're not really poor. 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance which can never fade, never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Get that perspective. It's the same perspective Paul shared 2 Corinthians 6, he said to his co-workers, he said, we are, we've been sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Jesus encouraged these believers in Smyrna to see their eternal riches. See what you truly possess in Christ. See that you're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Get that perspective. Fifth, he provides the mercy of Jesus. Verse 10, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 
Ten days. See, even when life gets really hard, we can see the mercy of God and that the suffering we experience, it does have an end point. He says, for ten days. We're not really sure if this is a literal ten days or it's figurative, but it seems to be rather literal. That no matter what, though, Satan's attack on his church, it might be very intense, but it's brief. And he says, only some of you will be in prison, not all of you. Well, that's a, that's a comfort. He's going to limit the number of believers, and he's going to limit how long. Do you see the mercy of Jesus? No suffering can surround any of us that's beyond what we can endure. 1 Corinthians 10, no test, no temptation comes your way. Is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He will never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. God is on his throne. He is in control. That's the only way we can remain calm in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the evils and the sorrows of life as he did in the life of Job, as he did in the life of Jeremiah, God said to the devil in Smyrna, this far and no farther. That's it. Ten days you got. And though it was still painful, we do recognize and get comfort from the one who loves us because he's committed to us and he's in control of our circumstances. Usually we see the wisdom and the grace of God in hindsight. Not always in the middle, but there's 10 days and we'll look back and see the mercy of God. Next, F, A, B, C, D, E. Is that six? I hate letters. <laughs> Whatever it is, F. Verse 11, I, I tell you, the devil will put some of, oh, it's the, it's the care of Jesus. I should tell you what it is and not stew about the letter. The care of Jesus. If I'm, one day I'll figure out how to preach. Verse 11, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Why? To test you. You see, the suffering they were under, going to, to con, under, undergo was going to be a test. Suffering always has that quality about us. It's there to reveal something about an individual that you might not have known otherwise. And what God wants others to see in us is what? It's his character. And so when the trial and the testing comes, it's not because God's asleep at the wheel. God's got a purpose. It's to test you. And James 1 says, how do you react to those? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may, 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 so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What Satan means to harm, God means for good. Whether in this life, you might see the good. You might not see the good till the next life. And the believers in Smyrna were tested, not so God could see what they could endure, but they were tested because God already knew what was in their hearts. The test was given so they could see what God had already done, so that they could see how much they'd grown so they could see and show how much they truly learned to rely on the grace and the strength of God. 
and they would see in this trial, my grace is sufficient for you. Satan tempts us to destroy us. God tests us in order to refine us so that we can say with Joseph, you know, to his brothers, you meant this for, for evil, but God meant it for good. G. Number seven. First is the generosity of Jesus. We learn about him his generosity. It's a resource we have. He says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus promised the believers in Smyrna a rich reward. He, he promises for all who endure suffering a rich reward. He says in verse 10 and 11, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Smyrna, famous for its Olympic-style games. They had these wreaths. They all knew what it was. They, they would award their, their good civic leaders this wreath every year. It was a, kind of a garland kind of thing. So they all knew what was involved. It's a hard-fought, sweaty race, painful. But at the end, Jesus Christ is standing there as the supreme victor, the first and the last and in his hand, the crown of life, which every conqueror would receive. This crown is not eternal life, but the fullness of that exploration, of, of, of the fullness of, of, of that life. And in Smyrna, they knew what that was on a physical realm. In the words of Paul, they do get it, they do it to get a crown, the world does, that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Nothing you can get in the world, no metal, no nothing, no anything, will compare to what God has promised to his faithful children. I'm going to give you the crown of life. So question number four. What does Jesus say to us today? What's his message? One of the things he's saying is suffering is the hallmark of the church. If you're a real, authentic group of believers, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you're going to suffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, he was hanged by a direct order of Himmler in the Flossenburg concentration camp in Germany on April 9, 1945, just days before the camp was liberated. He wrote this, Suffering then is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is, therefore, not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And they have been throughout history. And what does Christ say to them? What does he say to us? Because his message hasn't changed. It's the same message that he gave to the city and the church at Smyrna. He says two things. Number one, stop being afraid. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. It literally says, stop being afraid. Jesus, who knew they were afraid when they received this letter, he spoke to their fear with some peace and assurance 
Of all the commands in Scripture, which is the one that keeps coming up the most? It's always fear not. But the same Christ who spoke 2,000 years ago to Smyrna speaks it today. Stop being afraid. You can count on my purpose. You can count on my empathy, my knowledge, my perspective, my mercy, my care, and my generosity. As I was with your brothers and sisters in Smyrna, I'm going to be with you too. You can stop being afraid about when that next layoff at work is coming. Or you can stop being afraid of of what the doctor's going to say when he gets the test results. Or you can stop being afraid of the mounting bills and the diminishing income. You can stop being afraid and take the courage to take a risky stand when you walk in in, in the path of obedience. You can do this with his help. Christ brings himself to your need and you can trust him. Stop being afraid. And second, he says, be faithful. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death. Did you know that fear can actually lead you to faith? David said in Psalm 56, when I'm afraid, I, put, I will trust or I'll put my faith in you. In God, I will trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? To the synagogue official who'd heard his daughter had died before Jesus would come, Jesus said, don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. See, it is from faith that faithfulness springs. If we have faith in Christ, we're going to remain faithful to the end. But we ask ourselves, is Jesus worthy of our trust when we suffer? When life gets hard, is he worthy of that trust? The answer has to be a resounding yes. He's worthy of our implicit trust and faith because of who he is and what he's done. His purpose, his empathy, his knowledge, his perspective, his mercy, his care, his generosity, they all prove he is worthy of our faith and of our trust. And even death itself has no power over the believer who remains faithful. We may die. Well, the reality is we probably all will die unless Jesus returns. But that's not the question. The question is this. Will you be faithful to him no matter what? Few of us will be called to do what Polycarp had to do. For most of us, the suffering we face will be far less dramatic. The pressures will be more subtle. The temptations will be harder to spot. But the call from Jesus to us is still the same. Stop being afraid. Be faithful. Heaven's waiting. Death may come, but it cannot take away what God has given us. This world gives fame and it takes it away. This world, in this world, you can be rich today and poor tomorrow. You can be healthy today and full of cancer tomorrow. We can have a happy family and then all of a sudden everything falls apart. But the second death, hell, cannot touch us. Not at all. So be encouraged. 
Stand strong in the midst of the trials because the best is yet to come. We will receive the victor's crown of life. So don't run from your troubles because you're richer than you think. And heaven's just around the corner. The suffering that Paul chose, the, the, the suffering that the, that the prophets chose, the suffering that Jesus chose, the suffering that the believers in, in Smyrna chose, all of that suffering would have been utterly foolish if there were no resurrection into the joyful and amazing presence of Jesus. I think this letter challenges us with one question. Is Jesus enough? When life gets tough and difficult and when suffering comes, is Jesus enough? On the night of his arrest, Philip made one request of Jesus in the upper room. He said in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Just show us the Father. It'll be enough. Jesus' answer was this. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, I am enough. Philip thought he needed something else, maybe another sign, maybe another revelation. But Philip already had all that he needed standing right in front of him. And so do you. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, we do not know what the future holds. We do not know the depth of suffering that we may face. But we do know that there are believers around the world today facing death because of their trust in you. And we begin today by praying for them, that you would encourage them, that you would embolden them, that you would help them to be faithful to you to the end. And Father, for us, may that be true as well, that we would realize that you are enough and that whatever comes our way, we will be ready to be faithful that we will not be afraid and that we will be faithful to the end. That we who have ears might hear what the Spirit says to Peninsula. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.